Over the last two weeks, we have looked together at Romans chapter 9. And in Romans 9, we heard a lot about God's sovereignty, particularly his sovereignty in salvation. We learned that salvation does not depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. But Paul also wants to make clear that you and I are not just passive chess pieces in all this. Having emphasized and underlined God's sovereignty, Paul is now going to talk about our human responsibility. He's going to tell us we must make a response to God's sovereignty. That response is to stop trusting in ourselves and start trusting in God's mercy. Because his mercy is our only hope for salvation. So turn with me to the end of Romans chapter 9. In the church Bible, it's page 1137. And the large print Bibles, 1758. And I'm going to read from chapter 9, verse 30, to the end of chapter 10. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel, who pursued the law as the way of righteousness, have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses said this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all. And richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone 
who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses said, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. This is God's word. And Paul makes two pretty simple points in this passage. One, God has made his mercy available in Jesus Christ. Two, God has sent this good news to us and made it clear to us. And Paul wants you and I to see we have a responsibility to respond to what God has done. So first of all, God has made his mercy available in Jesus Christ. We've seen before that Paul's writing chapters 9 to 11, at least in part, because the Jews of his day are rejecting Christ. Not all of them, but many of them. And in chapter 9, Paul responded to that situation by talking about God's sovereignty over his creation. God cannot be constrained or manipulated by human plans or human efforts. God acts according to his own eternal plan. That is at least part of what makes God glorious. And when we apply that to the question of Paul's own people, the Jews, it means their rejection of Christ is not going to mess up God's plans. God is still in control. But now in our passage this morning, Paul looks at the situation from another angle. What's going on in the minds and hearts of those Israelites who reject Christ? And what's going on with the Gentiles who accept him? What's going on, Paul says, is that the Gentiles are putting their trust in God's work while the majority of the Jews are still trusting in their own work. They're refusing to accept that salvation depends on God's mercy, rather than human desire or effort. Paul sets out this difference in chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. 
What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. What does Paul mean? Well, when he says the Gentiles didn't pursue righteousness, he doesn't mean none of the Gentiles tried to be good. No doubt plenty of them were concerned about being good. But that's not the way Paul is using the word righteousness. He means the Gentiles were not trying to get in the right with God. They weren't pursuing after God. They weren't looking for a not guilty verdict from God. That didn't really bother them. They were just doing their thing, busy being pagans. When Paul arrived in a Gentile city like Philippi or Corinth, he didn't come because the people of the city were worried about how they could get right with the God revealed in the Old Testament. No, Paul came to those cities uninvited. And he presented the message of Jesus Christ. The message that we are all sinners who deserve God's wrath. But that Jesus died as our substitute. Taking God's wrath himself so we could be forgiven and accepted by God. That's what it means to be declared righteous. The Gentile people had not gone looking for that way of salvation. But when they heard the message, they believed it. They put their trust in it. They received God's gift of righteousness. What about the Jewish people? Well, unlike the Gentiles, the Jews definitely were pursuing righteousness. They were very concerned about God's acceptance. But they were determined to get it by their own effort. Verse 31, they pursued the law as the way of righteousness. They were confident they could earn righteousness by obeying the Old Testament law. But, Paul says, they have not attained their goal. Why not? Verse 32, Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. The Gentiles accepted they had no way to earn God's favor. They were glad to trust the work God had done for them through Jesus. But many of the Jews were not willing to humble themselves like that. They wouldn't admit that their privileged history and their personal effort couldn't save them. And so verse 32 goes on to say, they stumbled over the message about Jesus. They took offense at it. They insisted on trusting in their own work instead of trusting in God's work. Verse 33 is an Old Testament prophecy pointing to Jesus. It says, if we are too proud to admit our inability before God, if we keep on defending our self-sufficiency and our self-righteousness, then Jesus is going to be our undoing. He's going to be the rock that makes us fall. Because if we turn away from him, we're lost. 
Maybe you're in that situation this morning. Deep down, you're convinced you're just about decent enough and just about worthy enough to catch God's eye. You mightn't brag about it, but you're pretty sure about it. That's trusting in your own work. Instead of trusting God's mercy in Christ. It's that self-reliance that is causing you to stumble over the message about Jesus. Chapter 9 told us salvation does not depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. God has made his mercy available in Jesus. It comes to all who trust in Jesus. As verse 33 says, the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. We have God's promise. All who rely on Jesus will one day stand before God accepted and unashamed. Jesus is either going to be the rock you stand on or the rock you stumble over. If you trust his work, he's the rock that saves you. If you trust your own work, He's the rock that's going to make you fall. At the beginning of chapter 10, Paul emphasizes that this is not about being religious or non-religious. In chapter 10, verse 2, the Israelites are zealous for God. They're not God-haters. They're not God-deniers. They are big on God. But their zeal for God is not based on knowledge. What Paul means is God's plan is to glorify himself by showing mercy to all who trust in Christ. But these religious people are carrying on with their own plan. It's like Abby said earlier, they're trying to get God to fit in with their plan. And so, verse 3, they do not submit to God's righteousness. Please don't live your life trying to rewrite God's plan for him. In the earliest chapters of Scripture, God promised to do the work to save people who couldn't save themselves. And that is all of us. And since he made that promise, God has been unfolding his plan to make it happen. Please don't think you can alter God's plan. Don't think you can get his mercy some other way, by being nice or coming here every week or helping others. Those are important things, but they play no part in earning God's mercy. His mercy comes to those who lean on Jesus' work. That's God's plan. Our part is to accept it instead of trying to alter it. You and I will break before God's plan breaks. Then in chapter 10, Paul turns again to the Old Testament. He turns there to show that God's plan has not changed since the Old Testament. Verse 5 is an Old Testament quotation. The person who does these things will live by them. 
Meaning, if you put your faith in what you do, in this case, obeying the Old Testament law, if you approach God by that route, you will stand or fall by your own accomplishments. Now, that might sound like we've got a chance then that way. But in fact, judged by our own accomplishments, all of us fall short. Back in chapters 2 and 3, Paul showed us that in great detail. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Why? Because we are all born under the power of sin. If you and I trust our own ability, the only possible outcome is failure. Our only hope, as we sang earlier, is to trust in God's work for us. Verse 6, but the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. The point is, could you or I bring Christ down to earth from heaven? No, only God could do that. And he did. At Christmas, we celebrate Jesus' birth at Bethlehem. Could you or I raise Jesus up from the dead? No, only God could do that. And he did. At Easter, we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. All of that is work we human beings could not do. But it was necessary for our salvation. And God did it for us. Our responsibility is to put our trust in God's work. Look how Paul describes our responsibility in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We're called to personally accept what God has done in Christ and publicly confess that acceptance. Or as Paul puts it, believe in your heart and declare with your mouth. Sometimes people say, well, my faith is very personal. I don't like to talk about it. That's true. Our faith in Christ is personal, but we are not to keep it private. If we truly trust in him, we'll be willing to publicly identify with him. Keeping our faith quiet is really just a way of hedging our bets. So if you are trusting in Christ, kneel your colors to the mast. Whenever we realize that we owe everything to him, how can we be ashamed to say we belong to him? 
verse 13, is another quotation from the Old Testament. It's an important part of the big picture of God's sovereignty. Chapter 9 made it clear God chooses according to his own purposes. But we must not separate that truth from the promise we read here in verse 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 9 and 10 tell us God is sovereign over salvation. And if you call to him for mercy, you will receive mercy. And here the name Lord is referring to Jesus. When we call for mercy, we must acknowledge it comes through Jesus and Jesus alone. God has made his mercy available in Jesus Christ. And what is our human responsibility? It's to trust in Christ's work, not our own. But God has done more than simply provide a savior. He has also sent this good news to us and made it clear to us. That's the point of verses 14 to 21. In verse 14, Paul asks the question, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. There is a chain of events here. Paul is working backwards. He works backwards from the point when someone calls on the name of the Lord. People don't call on God unless they first believe. And they don't just wake up one day and decide they're going to believe. They have to hear the message first. That means someone has to share the message with them. They need to hear from a preacher. And that is not limited to a speaker up on a platform. It can just as easily be a friend at the dinner table. And preaching is not limited to half-hour sermons. It can be a simple five-minute explanation of the good news. Preaching is just sharing the good news. And it's something we can all do in some way. And here's the main point. Preachers have to be sent. That's the beginning of the chain that ends with someone finally calling on the name of the Lord. And Paul tells us, God has done that sending of the preachers. He not only worked for our salvation at the cross, he also worked to deliver the good news of what he did at the cross. God did that by commissioning a worldwide army of preachers. That army is the church. Not just church pastors, but the church. The risen Jesus told his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria 
and to the ends of the earth. Occasionally, people who are skeptical love to raise the issue of those who haven't heard about Christ. What's going to happen to them? The Bible's response to that is to say, let God worry about them. You have heard. And the reason you've heard is because God sent someone to tell you. You have no excuse for continuing in unbelief. If you turn away, the responsibility rests with you. Remember, Paul is deeply concerned for his own people, the Jews. When he traveled with the good news about Jesus, he went to the Jews first every time. In each new city, that was his pattern, first to the Jews. But in verse 16, he tells us what happened. But... Not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Paul notes that not all the Israelites believed. And so he asks, can they make the excuse that they didn't hear the message? The message about Christ. His response is, no, they heard it all right. The voice of God's preachers came to them. Well then, do they have any other excuse? Could they say they didn't understand this message that was brought to them? Verse 19, again I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Paul is saying the Israelites cannot claim the message about Jesus was unclear. But what's the point of these Old Testament quotations? They show God had always promised to do a work that expanded the boundaries of his people. These quotations show that it was always God's plan and the Jews accept the Old Testament as being from God. And in their Old Testament, he promised to show mercy to men and women from other nations. Men and women who had no history of dealings with God, no knowledge of God's law or temple worship or any of the other privileges that Israel had. God said he would bring people like that into his family. And Paul's point is, the Israelites should understand that's what God's doing through Jesus. They should understand that Paul's preaching about Jesus is God's way of finding and revealing himself to those Gentiles. 
Paul's fellow Jews have no excuse. They can't claim God has changed his plans. They can't claim it doesn't make sense. And so, in verse 29, we have God's verdict given through the prophet Isaiah. The unbelief of Paul's countrymen can't be blamed on God's failure to send them the message. Nor can it be blamed on their failure to understand the message. They don't believe because they are disobedient and obstinate. All of us here today have heard the message. And we can't say the message is unclear. All of us can understand God's promise. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God has made his mercy available in Jesus Christ. God has sent this good news to us and made it clear to us. If we reject it, we have no excuse. If you're not a Christian, don't walk away from what God has done. Come and talk to me or one of the other elders. There's no problem at all with having questions. But please, accept your responsibility. You must respond to what you've heard. And if you are a Christian, this passage has plenty of application for you too. It tells us that as Christians, we also have responsibilities. Responsibilities given to us by our sovereign God. Our passage highlights two of them. First, we are responsible to pray. Look at chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers and sisters... My heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. Remember the context in which Paul is saying this. These words come from the same man who wrote chapter 9, that great chapter on God's sovereignty. Paul knows that God chooses freely. And Paul gives himself to passionate prayer for the salvation of the Israelites. Is that strange? Clearly Paul doesn't think it is strange. It's worth reading through the rest of Paul's letters and noticing how many times he mentions his own prayers. How many times he asks for prayer from others. Clearly, Paul's belief in God's sovereignty does not drain away his enthusiasm for prayer. It fuels his enthusiasm for prayer. Paul is a committed prayer because he believes in God's sovereignty. Paul knows that prayer to a limited God would be just a shot in the dark. A limited God might miss your prayer because he's swamped with everybody else's prayers. Or he might really want to act on your prayer but not be able to. It's belief in a limited God that drains our enthusiasm for prayer. 
Paul is not pumped up about prayer because he believes God might be able to help. He's pumped because he knows without any doubt that God can and will help. Paul knows the sovereign God has freely chosen to involve us in his work through prayer. Paul knows that even when he's confused about what he's praying for, God never is. We discovered in chapter 8, God's Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness when we pray. Very often our prayers are ill-informed. We don't know all the details. We don't know what's best to pray for. But as we pray, we are reaching out to a God who is sovereign. And the Spirit of God molds those prayers. He shapes them in accordance with the will of God. So not a single prayer is ever wasted. As God's people, we are responsible to pray. And we can pray with absolute confidence that our prayers are powerful. That's not because we are so wise. It's because the God who calls us to pray has sovereign power. Second, we are responsible to witness. We've already noticed this. Our sovereign God has not chosen to spread the good news magically through some kind of vibrations in the atmosphere. God has chosen to spread the good news through his church, through the mouths of his people. If you're a Christian, you are one of the people that verse 15 is talking about. You are one of the people God has sent to your family and friends and colleagues to bring them the good news. It is no accident that you live in the house you live in or the street you live in or that you work in the building you work in. God has sent you there. Yes, one of your responsibilities is to do a good job, the very best job you can. But you are also there to bring the good news about Jesus to that building or that house or that street. God is sovereign and you are one of his messengers. Recognize that responsibility. And as you have opportunity, speak up for Jesus. God will use your efforts in his sovereign plan. A couple of weeks ago, I showed some photos on a Sunday morning of Jenna Yeager, the German girl who came to us a couple of years ago after hearing a street preacher in Walsall. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago she came then to us and she heard some more about Jesus. She left, went back to Germany, and now she's part of a church in Germany and she was baptized last summer. I mentioned that again today because we, as a church, were one of the links in the chain for Jenna. God used this fellowship as part of his work in Jenna's life. Now often you and I will never know 
what God brings from our witness. But in Jenna's case, we did happen to find out. But often we'll never know in this life. But the lesson for us is, sow the seed of the gospel as you can. And know that the sovereign God who commissioned you will use your witness. Your obedient sharing of the good news will have eternal significance. It's part of God's plan. So let's take our God-given responsibilities seriously. They are part of God's plan to show mercy. And if you're not a believer, come this morning. Receive God's mercy in Christ. We're going to have an opportunity to respond to God's word now as we sing together. First of all, only you can rescue. And then we have heard a joyful sign, Jesus saves.